0: Chapter 50 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Psuke Berea. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. CHAPTER 50 on reading this i had no reason to disguise my joy and hope from frederick lawrence for i had none to be ashamed of i felt no joy but that his sister was at length released from her afflictive overwhelming toil no hope but that she would in time recover from the effects of it and be suffered to rest in peace and quietness at least for the remainder of her life i experienced a painful commiseration for her unhappy husband though fully aware that he had brought every particle of his suffering upon himself, and but too well deserved them all, and a profound sympathy for her own afflictions, and deep anxiety for the consequences of those harassing cares, those dreadful vigils, that incessant and deleterious confinement beside a living corpse, for I was persuaded that she had not hinted half the sufferings she had to endure. "'You will go to her, Lawrence,' said I, as I put the letter into his hand yes immediately that's right i'll leave you then to prepare for your departure i've done that already while you were reading the letter and before you came and the carriage is now coming round to the door inly approving his promptitude i bade him good morning and withdrew he gave me a searching glance as we pressed each other's hands at parting but whatever he sought in my countenance he saw there nothing but the most becoming gravity it might be mingled with a little sternness and momentary resentment at what i suspected to be passing in his mind had i forgotten my own prospects my ardent love my pertinacious hopes it seemed like sacrilege to revert to them now but i had not forgotten them It was, however, with a gloomy sense of the darkness of those prospects, the fallacy of those hopes, and the vanity of that affection, that I reflected on those things, as I remounted my horse and slowly journeyed homewards. Mrs. Huntington was free now. It was no longer a crime to think of her. But did she ever think of me? Not now. Of course it was not to be expected. But would she, when the shock was over, in all the course of her correspondence with her brother? our mutual friend as she herself had called him she had never mentioned me but once and that was from necessity this alone afforded strong presumption that i was already forgotten yet this was not the worst it might have been her sense of duty that kept her silent she might be only trying to forget but in addition to this i had a gloomy conviction that the awful realities that she had seen and felt her reconciliation with the man she had once loved his dreadful sufferings and death, must eventually efface from her mind all traces of her passing love for me. She might recover from these horrors so far as to be restored to her former health, her tranquillity, her cheerfulness even, but never to those feelings which would appear to her henceforth as a fleeting fancy, a vain elusive dream, especially as there was no one to remind her of my existence no means of assuring her of my fervent constancy, now that we were so far apart, and delicacy forbade me to see her, or to write to her. For months to come, at least. And how could I engage her brother in my behalf? How could I break that icy crust of shy reserve? Perhaps he would disapprove of my attachment now as highly as before. Perhaps he would think me too poor, too lowly born, to match with his sister." Yes, there was another barrier. Doubtless there was a wide distinction between the rank and circumstances of Mrs. Huntington, the lady of Grassdale Manor, and those of Mrs. Graham, the artist, the tenant of Wildfell Hall. And it might be deemed presumption in me to offer my hand to the former, by the world, by her friends, if not by herself, a penalty I might brave, if I were certain she loved me but otherwise. How could I? and finally her deceased husband, with his usual selfishness, might have so constructed his will as to place restrictions upon her marrying again, so that, you see, I had reasons enough for despair, if I chose to indulge it. Nevertheless, it was with no small degree of impatience that I look forward to Mr. Lawrence's return from Grasdale, impatience that increased in proportion as his absence was prolonged. He stayed away some ten or twelve days all very right that he should remain to comfort and help his sister but he might have written to tell me how she was or at least to tell me when to expect his return for he might have known i was suffering tortures of anxiety for her and uncertainty for my own future prospects and when he did return all he told me about her was that she had been greatly exhausted and worn by her unremitting exertions in behalf of that man who had been the scourge of her life, and had dragged her with him nearly to the portals of the grave. I was still much shaken and depressed by his melancholy end, and the circumstances attendant upon it, but no word in reference to me, no intimation, that my name had ever passed her lips, or had even been spoken in her presence.' To be sure, I asked no questions on the subject, I could not bring my mind to do so, believing as I did, that Lawrence was indeed adverse to the idea of my union with his sister. I saw that he expected to be further questioned concerning his visit, and I saw too, with a keen perception of awakened jealousy, or alarmed self-esteem, or by whatever name I ought to call it, that he rather shrank from that impending scrutiny, and was no less pleased than surprised to find it did not come. Of course i was burning with anger but pride obliged me to suppress my feelings and to preserve a smooth face or at least a stoic calmness throughout the interview it was well it did for reviewing the matter in my sober judgment i must say it would have been highly absurd and improper to have quarrelled with him on such an occasion i must confess too that i wronged him in my heart The truth was he liked me very well, but he was fully aware that a union between Mrs. Huntington and me would be what the world calls a misalliance, and it was not in his nature to set the world at defiance, especially in such a case as this, for its dread laugh or ill-opinion would be far more terrible to him directed against his sister than himself. Had he believed that a union was necessary to the happiness of both, or of either, or had he known how fervently I loved her, he would have acted differently. But seeing me so calm and cool, he would not for the world disturb my philosophy, and though refraining entirely from any active opposition to the match, he would yet do nothing to bring it about, and would much rather take the part of prudence in aiding us to overcome our mutual predilections than that of feeling to encourage them. And he was in the right of it, you will say." perhaps he was at any rate i had no business to feel so bitterly against him as i did but i could not then regard the matter in such a moderate light and after a brief conversation upon indifferent topics i went away suffering all the pangs of wounded pride and injured friendship in addition to those resulting from the fear that i was indeed forgotten and the knowledge that she i loved was alone and afflicted suffering from injured health and dejected spirits and I was forbidden to console or assist her, forbidden even to assure her of my sympathy, for the transmission of any such message through Mr. Lawrence was now completely out of the question. But what should I do? I would wait and see if she would notice me, which of course she would not, unless by some kind message entrusted to her brother that, in all probability, he would not deliver, and then, dreadful thought, she would think me cooled and changed for not returning it or, perhaps, he had already given her to understand that I had ceased to think of her. I would wait, however, until the six months after our parting were fairly past, which would be about the close of February, and then I would send her a letter, modestly reminding her of her former permission to write to her at the close of that period, and hoping that I might avail myself of it, at least to express my heartfelt sorrow for her late afflictions, my just appreciation of her generous conduct, and my hope that her health was now completely re-established and that she would some time be permitted to enjoy those blessings of a peaceful happy life which had been denied her so long but which none could more truly be said to merit than herself adding a few words of kind remembrance to my little friend Arthur, with the hope that he had not forgotten me, and perhaps a few more in reference to bygone times, to the delightful hours I had passed in her society, and my unfading recollection of them, which was the salt and solace of my life, and a hope that her recent troubles had not entirely banished me from her mind. If she did not answer this, of course, I should write no more. If she did, as surely she would in some fashion." my future proceedings would be regulated by her reply ten weeks was long to wait in such a miserable state of uncertainty but courage it must be endured in meantime i would continue to see lawrence now and then though not so often as before and i would still pursue my habitual inquiries after his sister if he had lately heard from her how she was but nothing more i did so and the answers I received were always provokingly limited to the letter of the inquiry. She was much as usual. She made no complaints, but the tone of her last letter evinced great depression of mind. She said she was better, and, finally, she said she was well, and very busy with her son's education, and with the management of her late husband's property, and the regulation of his affairs. The rascal had never told me how that property was disposed, or whether Mr. Huntington had died into state or not, and I would sooner die than ask him, lest he should misconstrue into covetousness my desire to know. He never offered to show me his sister's letters now, and I never hinted a wish to see them. February, however, was approaching. December was past, January at length was almost over. A few more weeks, and then certain despair or renewal of hope would put an end to this long agony of suspense. But, alas, it was just about that time that she was called to sustain another blow in the death of her uncle, a worthless old fellow enough in himself, I dare say, but he had always shown more kindness and affection to her than to any other creature, and she had always been accustomed to regard him as a parent. She was with him when he died, and had assisted her aunt to nurse him during the last stage of his illness. Her brother went to Stanningley to attend the funeral, and told me, upon his return, that she was still there, endeavouring to cheer her aunt with her presence, and likely to remain some time. This was bad news for me, for while she continued there I could not write to her, as I did not know the address, and I would not ask it of him. But week followed week, and every time I inquired about her she was still at Staningley. "'Where is Standingley? I asked at last. "'Shire,' was the brief reply, and there was something so cold and dry in the manner of it, that I was effectually deterred from requesting a more definite account. "'When will she return to Grassdale?' was my next question. "'I don't know.' "'Confound it!' I muttered." why mr markham asked my companion with an air of innocent surprise but i did not deign to answer him save by a look of silent sullen contempt at which he turned away and contemplated the carpet with a slight smile half pensive half amused but quickly looking up he began to talk of other subjects trying to draw me into a cheerful and friendly conversation but i was too much irritated to discourse with him and soon took leave you see lawrence and i somehow could not manage to get on very well together the fact is i believe we were both of us a little too touchy it is a troublesome thing halford this susceptibility to affronts where none are intended i am no martyr to it now as you can bear me witness i have learned to be merry and wise to be more easy with myself and more indulgent to my neighbours and i can afford to laugh at both lawrence and you partly from accident partly from willful negligence on my part—for I was really beginning to dislike him—several weeks elapsed before I saw my friend again. When we did meet, it was he that sought me out. One bright morning, early in June, he came into the field where I was just commencing my hay-harvest. "'It is a long time since I saw you, Markham,' said he, after the first few words had passed between us. "'Do you never mean to come to Woodford again?' I called once, and you were out. I was sorry, but that was long since. I hoped you would call again, and now I have called, and you were out, which you generally are, or I would do myself the pleasure of calling more frequently. But being determined to see you this time, I have left my pony in the lane, and come over hedge and ditch to join you, for I am about to leave Woodford for a while, and may not have the pleasure of seeing you again for a month or two. Where are you going? "'To Grassdale first,' said he, with a half-smile he would willingly have suppressed if he could. "'To Grasdale? Is she there, then?' "'Yes, but in a day or two she will leave it to accompany Mrs. Maxwell to F., for the benefit of the sea air, and I shall go with them. F. was at that time a quiet but respectable watering-place. It is considerably more frequented now. "'Lawrence seemed to expect me to take advantage of this circumstance to entrust him with some sort of message to his sister.' and I believe he would have undertaken it to deliver it without any material objections, if I had had the sense to ask him, though of course he would not offer to do so, if I was content to let it alone. But I could not bring myself to make the request, and it was not till after he was gone, that I saw how fair an opportunity I had lost, and then, indeed, I deeply regretted my stupidity and my foolish pride. But it was now too late to remedy the evil." He did not return till towards the latter end of August. He wrote to me twice, or thrice from F., but his letters were most provokingly unsatisfactory, dealing in generalities, or in trifles, that I cared nothing about, or replete with fancies and reflections equally unwelcome to me at the time, saying next to nothing about his sister, and little more about himself. I would wait, however, till he came back. Perhaps I could get something more out of him, then." At all events, I would not write to her now, while she was with him and her aunt, who doubtless would still be more hostile to my presumptuous aspirations than himself. When she was returned to the silence and solitude of her own home, it would be my fittest opportunity. When Lawrence came, however, he was as reserved as ever on the subject of my keen anxiety. He told me that his sister had derived considerable benefit from her stay at F. That her son was quite well, and— Alas, that both of them were gone with Mrs. Maxwell back to Stanningley, and there they stayed at least three months. But instead of boring you with my chagrin, my expectations and disappointments, my fluctuations of dull despondency and flickering hope, my varying resolutions, and now to drop it, and now to persevere, now to make a bold push, and now to let things pass and patiently abide my time, I will employ myself in settling the business of one or two of the characters introduced in the course of this narrative, whom I may not have occasion to mention again. Some time before Mr. Huntington's death, Lady Lowbrough eloped with another gallant to the Continent, where, having lived a while in reckless gaiety and dissipation, they quarrelled and parted. She went dashing on for a season, but years came and money went. She sunk at length into difficulty and debt, disgrace and misery, and died at last, as I have heard, in penury, neglect, and utter wretchedness. But this might only be a report. She may be living yet for anything I or any of her relatives or former acquaintances can tell, for they have all lost sight of her long years ago, and would as thoroughly forget her if they could. Her husband, however, upon this second misdemeanour, immediately sought and obtained a divorce, and, not long after, married again. It was well he did, for Lord Lowbrew, morose and moody as he seemed, was not the man for a bachelor's life. No public interests, no ambitious projects or active pursuits, or ties of friendship even, if he had had any friends, could compensate to him for the absence of domestic comforts and endearments. He had a son, and a nominal daughter, it is true, but they too painfully reminded him of their mother, and the unfortunate little Annabella was a source of perpetual bitterness to his soul. He had obliged himself to treat her with paternal kindness, he had forced himself not to hate her, and even, perhaps, to feel some degree of kindly regard for her, at last, in return for her artless and unsuspecting attachment to himself. But the bitterness of his self-condemnation for his inward feelings towards that innocent being, his constant struggles to subdue the evil promptings of his nature, for it was not a generous one, though partly guessed at by those who knew him, could be known to God and his own heart alone so also was the hardness of his conflicts with the temptation to return to the vice of his youth and seek oblivion for past calamities and deadness to the present misery of a blighted heart a joyless friendless life and a morbidly disconsolate mind by yielding again to that insidious foe to health and sense and virtue which had so deplorably enslaved and degraded him before the second object of his choice was widely different from the first. Some wondered at his taste, some even ridiculed it. But in this their folly was more apparent than his. The lady was about his own age, i.e., between thirty and forty, remarkable neither for beauty, nor wealth, nor brilliant accomplishments, nor any other thing that I ever heard of except genuine good sense, unswerving integrity, active piety, warm-hearted benevolence, and a fund of cheerful spirits. These qualities, however, as you may readily imagine, combined to render her an excellent mother to the children, an invaluable wife to his lordship. He, with his usual self-deprecation, thought her a world too good for him, and while he wondered at the kindness of Providence in conferring such a gift upon him, and even at her taste in preferring him to other men, he did his best to reciprocate the good she did him, and so far succeeded that she was, and I believe still is, one of the happiest and fondest wives in England. And all those who question the good taste of either partner may be thankful if their respective selections afford them half the genuine satisfaction in the end, or repay their preference with affection half as lasting and sincere if you are at all interested in the fate of that low scoundrel grimsby i can only tell you that he went from bad to worse sinking from bathos to bathos of vice and villainy consorting only with the worst members of his club and the lowest dregs of society happily for the rest of the world and at last met his end in a drunken brawl from the hands it is said of some brother scoundrel he had cheated at play as for mr hattersley he had never wholly forgotten his resolution to come out from among them and behave like a man and a christian and the last illness and death of his once jolly friend huntington so deeply and seriously impressed him with the evil of their former practices that he never needed another lesson of the kind avoiding the temptations of the town he continued to pass his life in the country immersed in the usual pursuits of a hearty active country gentleman his occupations being those of farming, and breeding horses and cattle, diversified with a little hunting and shooting, and enlivened by the occasional companionship of his friends, better friends than those of his youth, and the society of his happy little wife, now cheerful and confiding as heart could wish, and his fine family of stalwart sons and blooming daughters. His father, the banker, having died some years ago and left him all his riches, he has now full scope for the exercise of his prevailing tastes, and I need not tell you that Ralph Hattersley, Esquire, is celebrated throughout the country for his noble breed of horses. End of chapter 50 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall